Glad you're with us. Let's pray. Holy Father, Holy God, Holy Spirit. We come before you, Lord, just out of sheer privilege and grace on your part to stand before you with your Son intervening for us. God, we do not take this privilege lightly. It was a great expense, Lord, that you reestablished a fellowship with us. Father, as we listen to your word today, may your voice alone be heard. Lord, may people be open to the message you have prepared for this morning. And we pray, Lord, that the voice of man does not get in the way. Lord, we love you and praise you. Grateful to be here. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So last week we witnessed Jesus continuing to confront the spiritual elites. For those of you... who were here, like the last time you were here, we were in Luke. I want you to know we've spread right along and we're in Luke. And uh, we're going to be in Luke for uh, for a while. So um, we've been just going step by step and day by day and sometimes hour by hour uh, following the Lord Jesus in his final hours uh, on this earth uh, as the incarnate God. And we, we've seen a little bit of, of a change in, in approach from Jesus because he is going, he's in his last few hours now before the cross. <clears throat> and we read last week that probably what was going on, he was so confrontational, we, we went to, into Matthew 23 where the seven woes for the Pharisees were. And they're just so confrontational and in, in some ways brutal. And uh, so the conclusion we drew, and I think it's the right conclusion, is he was doing what we call poking the bear. He was intentionally, he was intentionally enraging the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes because he knew that his time of going to the cross was already preordained in heaven and it had to take place on Friday during the sacrifices of the lambs uh, for a Passover celebration. And so last week we saw him just give seven woes. I won't repeat them now, but you can find them in Matthew 23. And uh, it was just, uh, it was an amazing thing to read. But anyway, last week we witnessed Jesus continuing to confront the spiritual elites in the temple complex. And these passages were known as the seven woes. Just a little side note, up to this point, we believe Jesus has been preaching in the court of the Gentiles. He he quite possibly did that confrontation in the court of the Gentiles in the temple complex. And uh, although he may have already moved into this court by the time he gave the seven woes, and the court I'm speaking of of is called the court of the women. And as a brief uh, refresher, the size of the overall temple complex was 35 acres. Most of this consisted of the court for the Gentiles. And within the court of the the Gentiles was the court for the women, then the court for Israel, and then the court for the priests. And then came the temple building itself, which the first room was called the Holy Place. The, The final room, which is where the Ark of the Covenant rested, was called the Holy of Holies. So Jesus has been moving through the court of the Gentiles, and we believe that then he made his way into the court uh, of the women. So I want to give you just a little bit of history <clears throat> so maybe we can picture where we are if we were with Jesus right now. Much of this, by the way, comes from Bible-history.com. 
Com. There's excellent websites for learning these things on your own, at, you know, when you have the time to do it or when you take the time to do it. But the entire compound was considered to be holy, all 35 acres. But it became increasingly more holy as one entered further in from east to west. King Herod had enclosed the outer court with colonnades and it was referred to as the court of the Gentiles because the Gentiles or the non-Jews were permitted to enter the temple area only there. Colonnades are what we see here. The little columns that we didn't construct here, but they were here when we moved here. Those are colonnades. Probably not this large there. So <clears throat> the outer, the court of the, of the Gentiles, within there are all these colonnades around. They could walk within the 35 acres, meaning the Gentiles, but they were forbidden to go any further than that outer court. They were excluded from entering into any of the inner courts, including the court of the women. And warning signs in Greek and Latin were placed with a grave warning that said, penalty for such trespass was death. So before you would enter into the court of the women, whichever door you're in, I think only one, there may have been two, uh, there's, a, there's a sign posted in Greek and Latin that says, if you are not a Jew and you enter into these courts, you will be executed. Pretty strict. Now, the Romans, now we realize it's a kingdom within a kingdom. The Romans had already given permission to the Jewish authorities to execute without asking Roman in certain situations. And this was one of them. If you were a Gentile and you entered into this court, they did not have to go to Rome to get permission to execute you. They already had the authority to execute you with that. They could carry out that death penalty, even if it was a Roman citizen, by the way. A side note here, it was for this alleged crime that Paul, later on, was attacked and merely beaten to death by an angry cat crowd during his last visit to Jerusalem. We read this in Acts 21, 29, and 30. It may be on your scripture sheet. It may just be a reference. For they had previously seen uh, Trophimus or Trophimus, the Ephesian, with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. If you want to read the rest of that ordeal, you can go to Acts 21 and read it. It's pretty fascinating. God used it as an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So obviously they took this seriously. In Herod's temple, the name treasury was specifically given to the court of women. So there's the women's court, and it was also known as the treasury. And you'll understand why here in a little bit. The court of the women obtained its name not from its appropriation to the exclusive use of women. In other words, you didn't have to be a woman to enter into the court of women. It's just that the court of women was the name of that court, but if you could not go through the court of women as a man, you could not go into the court of Israel because they all led into another. This was probably the common place for worship. 
the females occupying, according to Jewish tradition, only a raised gallery along three sides of the court. The court covered a space upwards of 200 feet square, not to be confused with 200 square feet. 200, 200, 200. And within it, against the wall, the 13 chests or trumpets for charitable contributions were placed. So if you walk into the court of the women, you will see colonnades, just like on the court of the Gentiles. You will see colonnades. The ladies typically inhabited the surrounding three sides, and I think there were even platforms. And this is where much of the teaching took place. It was a smaller area to teach than the Gentile court. And these colonies were surrounding this, uh, this court inside. These 13 chests were placed in between the colonnades, one at a time, obviously. And they were narrow at the mouth and wide at the bottom, shaped like trumpets, which is where they got their name. There's good reason for that, because you could drop things in, but you couldn't take anything out. We have new offering baskets coming. And it has a credit card swipe on the side. I'm just kidding. Just shut up, Tom. Now, there are specific objects, or what was to be, to be deposited in those trumpets, or those money boxes, were actually written on the trumpet. Very, very organized. Nine of the trumpets were for the receipt of what was legally due by worshipers. So if you hadn't yet to bring in your tithe, nine of those trumpets, you could have gone to any one of those nine trumpets and put your tithe in or put your money in. The other four were strictly voluntary. And they break down as follows. Trumpets one and two were appropriated to the half-shekel temple tribute of the current and of the past year. Half-shekel. Two of those trumpets were for the half-shekel people who were going to half-a-shekel. Into trumpet three, those women who had to bring turtle doves for a burnt and a sin offering dropped their equivalent in money of two turtle doves or whatever, which was daily taken out and a corresponding number of the turtle doves offered. So the, the officials of the temple would go out and catch turtle doves and keep them in cages. And the lady would come up and say, I've seen two, two turtle doves worth. They would say, we'll put two turtle, tur- turtle doves worth of money in there. And so that would be marked down. And then someplace else, two turtle doves would be be sacrificed. Now, the question is, did they really sacrifice those? We don't know. But it would not surprise me if they didn't. It would be cheaper. This not only saved the labor of so many separate sacrifices, but spared the modesty of those who might not wish to have the occasion or the circumstances of their offering to be publicly known. So if I were a lady back then... And all these ladies were in front of me doing two turtle doves, and I came in with four crates of turtle doves. Then it would be real, rather obvious. So theoretically, then I can, in these two trumpets, I can put the money in, and they would be changed out. This was probably, by the way, 
the trumpet into which Mary, the mother of Jesus, deposited the value of her offering in Luke 22, 22 through 24, when the angel, when the aged Simeon took the infant Savior in his arms and blessed God. So Mary and Joseph, very familiar with this. Jesus, very familiar with this from the time he was a child. He went to the temple at least once a year for Passover. And he observed these things. When you're one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven years old, you may be kind of playing with other people and, you know, and kind of noticing things. But by the time you're preteen and teen, you're understanding some of these things. So this is very familiar to Jesus. We read in Luke 2, 24, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Trumpet number four similarly received the value of the offerings of young pigeons. And trumpet number five, contribution for the wood used in the temple. Really practical. Trumpet number six for the incense. And in trumpet number seven for the golden vessels for the ministry deposited. And trumpet number eight was reserved for any money that was left over from the money that had been set aside for man's sin offering. In other words, you didn't get change back. Trumpets 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 were destined for what was left over from trespass offerings, offerings of birds, the offering of the Nazarite, of the cleansed leper, and voluntary offerings. But there was still another special treasury chamber And into this chamber at certain times they carried the contents of the 13 chests that was also an additional, there was also an additional chamber called a chamber of the silent. And this was reserved where devout persons secretly deposited money, which was then secretly used for educating children of the pious or the devout Poor. It was what we would call, um, what do we call that? Anyway, there's a, yeah, we have, we, have a, we have a word for it, but I must not use it very often. Um, so it was, it was if, if you were a child of a devout person and they did not have any money, this was reserved for you. And we read this, something about uh, these trumpets where God, through Jesus Christ, uh, made a little, had a little bit of humor. I know that's hard to believe sometimes. But because the shape of these treasure chests were like trumpets, in Matthew 6, 2, Jesus did a little play on words. He said this, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, In other words, they would carry these trumpets before them. Sound no trumpets before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, A lot of commentators teach that they actually blew trumpets when these were given. And uh, history says that wasn't what it was at all. These boxes were shaped like trumpets. So when they say, bring the trumpet, or the trumpets, 
That's what they were talking about. So in all probability, this space where the 13 trumpets were placed was the treasury where Jesus taught on that memorable Feast of of Tabernacles. We're going to read that in John 8.20. I'm just going to read it for you. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Probably the first time he spoke in his ministry. By the way, did you know he cleansed the temple twice? First time, first two years before, didn't cleanse it the second time, then he cleansed it this time. So when you read in different versions about the cleansing of the temple, it sounds like there's a contradiction and there's not. There were two different events. And that brings us to our scripture this morning. Luke 21, 1 through 4 says this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So the question I asked of just for me is, why teach this now? Now, remember what had taken place before. He had just finished leveling the leadership with declaring the seven woes. He had just pushed them over the edge to the point that they were finally willing to say, we're going to kill this man. We just have to find a way to do it. And Jesus is is going to push them to the point that they are going to reveal themselves to be liars and madmen, which is what they called him. He has argued and debated the law. He has performed miracles. There are hundreds of thousands of people who still believe he was there to be coronated as the human king of Israel. We read this as history, and we realize that as soon as he entered the temple and they were saying, glory, 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 and he got off of the mule and he looked around the temple and he goes back to Bethsaida. Help me out here. Yeah, Bethsaida. And, and, and Lazarus is there, and, and he's, he's gathering, he's praying, and, and he's, he's gaining resolve, and he goes back in, and he begins to condemn. So we know all of this, but a hundred, oh, hundreds of thousands of people are still waiting for the coronation celebration. And Jesus is dealing with all of this. The cross is casting its shadow over him. He has seen the future of his disciples. He knows what these disciples are going to suffer. And he's with them. He has seen the future of his disciples. He knows of Simon Peter's looming failure. He knows who will betray him. And yes, he is still grieving for Judas. Do we get that? He's still grieving for Judas. How do we know? Ezekiel 18.23 Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. But above all the things that he would endure, there was one that he dreaded the most. He knows that his father will forsake him. Can we just let that sink in for a moment? 
We have forsaken the Father many times, have we not? The Father was going to forsake His Son. Now, think through this. Jesus had never known sin. Not even a little white lie. He had never participated in a sin. Sin was absolutely foreign to Jesus Christ. And what was going to happen on the cross? He was going to take upon himself the sin of the world. And above and beyond that, as he did that, his father would turn his face away. He knew this. And that's what he was dreading the most. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had never, ever, ever existed without one another. They had always been in community with one another. There was never a beginning to any of the Trinity. They had always existed together. Someone recently brought something to my attention that I had not thought of before. Throughout the Scripture, God the Father continually expresses His love for us and His Son, Jesus. Jesus continually calls attention to the love of His Father. And we know that Jesus loves us and His Father, but it is His Father's love that creates a foundation upon which the Trinity exists. The Father is the love giver. Jesus received the Father's love. And he continually points us to the Father's love. This man said, as, he, as far as he knows, there is one time when Jesus Christ said, I love the Father, or I love you, Father. I haven't done the research on that, but I'm sure you can do that with Google. But here's the point. They were always in community. They were never alone. This is why we know that God didn't create Adam because he was lonely. Or he was bored. I've heard that before. They are totally one and complete. Thus the Holy Trinity is referred to as the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in that order. It is the Father's love upon which the Son and Holy Spirit depend to execute their ministries. This is the Father who will turn His face away from His Son in just a few hours. He has never not known the love of His Father. The only time Christ cried out on the cross was the moment God turned His face away from Him. Do you remember what He said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the things Jesus knew and anticipated as he was sitting in the courtyard of the women that day when he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. And they all contributed out of their abundance, for they did. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So why this comment? Why now? And this is only conjecture on my part. 
Is it possible that after all that Jesus had dealt with in the past few days and all that was on the horizon for him, is it possible that he sat down to rest? There's a little bit of a hint of this in Mark 12, 41. He says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. I think I saw this scene in a movie, or maybe I read it in a book. I'm not sure, but the scene was this. It was during the Depression, and um, the, um, it was a farm, and obviously it was very, very tough. There's this man and his two sons, and they're out gathering hay. No real machinery to do much of it. And they're gathering hay, and it's blisteringly hot. And they've been working all morning. And finally, the father sits down on the wagon, and his two sons sit beside him. And they're just drinking some water. And then the father looks up and he sees across the field his house and he sees his wife hanging laundry on the clothesline. You know what a clothesline is, anybody? It's a line that you put clothes on. And he sees his wife hanging clothes on the clothesline. Now during these tough work days, this father poured into his son's all the wisdom he had consistently. It was discipleship time as they're working. And they're sitting on the wagon and they're resting and they're exhausted. And this man looks up and sees his wife putting clothing on the line. And he looked to his two boys and asked, Have you ever wondered What makes all of this hard work worthwhile? And then he pointed toward the house and said, Your mother. My bride. She has never stopped giving. And what she gives could never be repaid on this earth. And I wonder if Jesus, after teaching and rebuking and debating and healing, sat down for just a moment and while seated, observed this widow offering this amazing gift. And he said, this is why I do what I'm about to do. Who's it for? My bride. And I think it's a summarization of the gospel. And I think he was illustrating for them a concise picture of what the bottom line is. And perhaps he was saying to them that when you get lost in the philosophy, disciples, and you get lost in the theology and the debates and the testing and the trial. 
When you get lost in all of these things, just remember this widow. Because she has it right. It is not about the amount she gives. It is about what she is willing to do without for my sake. What are you willing to do without? We live in a pretty good country. Forget politics, that's a mess. We live in a pretty good country. Our poverty level in the United States is wealth in many other countries. But what are you willing to do without? 1 John 2, 15, 17 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Can I just tell you some things I see? Kim and I continue to have the uh, teenagers minister to us. There are two or three things we worry about all of our teenagers. All of them. Don't be seduced into the popularity of the world. The enemy has a lot of agents. And let's just say they don't, they don't even know their agents. But the pressure that is put upon our teenagers in public school to be cool and acceptable and popular is intense. The other thing that we are so concerned about for our teenagers is sexual attractions. They're in a very, very tender age. And the world is saying this, the Bible don't mean nothing. That's what the world is saying to them. It's a bunch of old rules that's designed to keep you from having fun. And if that's the kind of God you serve, then why do you want to serve that kind of God that just because you don't follow his rules, he hammers you? It's natural. We're concerned about some of people that are older than teens, all of us. This culture is designed for romance. It's designed for cohabitation. Just be careful. The world will never tell you what you're about to sacrifice. The farmer in our story boiled down all that he had taught his sons to this point. I do this for my bride. What would make him say this? Because of what she was willing to live without. 
to be his bride. I wonder if Jesus was thinking the same thing. All that I am about to suffer is for my bride. The church is my bride. May we return to a scripture from last week when Jesus was answering what was supposed to be the unanswerable question. Matthew 22, 37-40 says this, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandments. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He was asked, Lord, what's the most important commandment? Meant to trap him. And that was his answer. May I ask you a rhetorical question? Have you ever wondered why Jesus said that the children, that we must be, that we must be like them to enter into heaven? Why would he say that? You have to be like one of these kids. Well, children are totally dependent upon their parents. They can't survive. Otherwise, they not only cannot provide for themselves, they don't even know what they need to survive. This is us. Somehow we as believers can begin to believe the lie all over again. We believe that we can be self-sufficient. That God is there only in case we need a miracle. We believe that we know better what brings us joy and peace than what he knows, what will bring us joy and peace. And it may be easy for us to look at the sin of the world and say absolutely no to that sin. Because we can easily see the danger of lust and greed and pride. We can easily know that we are to say no to such things. But our enemy is more deceitful than this. Pride in our service to God is still pride. I feel good about helping people. Well, congratulations. That's the base. Everybody should be helping people. I feel good about how friendly our church is. It's pride. I know you think I'm being a little unforgiving here. It can happen at a heartbeat. This is why we're proud of the Gathering Community Church. Uh, you know, Paul says, look, the pride I have is in what God's doing here. That's our pride. How he could take a bunch of people like us and do what he chooses to do. That he would even choose people like us. Have pride in the church building we're in or hoarding money while ignoring the needs of the least of these. Longing to be a particular kind of church that God has not ordained us to be. There's a certain guy, he has this small church on the east side of Cleveland. His name is Alistair Begg. And... Um, He's been told this before. He says, you have such a big church as your accent. He goes, I knew. Some of, uh, some of the guys went to a basics conference last spring. We're going to go again. 
And uh, we want any men who are interested to know that's in May. It's pretty reasonably priced. But you know, you walk into his church, and there are just a lot of people, number one. They have a bookstore that would rival any bookstore. Uh, they just did a refurbishing of the entire property and added K through maybe sixth grade private school. He has a radio ministry that they had to build a separate building for. And I listen to him teach, and I love what he teaches. I'm, I'm discouraged sometimes because he just does it so well. And I, I don't have no Scottish accent, you know what I'm saying? You know, it, it's easy. It's, it's just so easy to go there to be lifted up and to look at all there is and go, huh, what am I doing wrong? Now, I, I know you don't like to hear your pastor say all this stuff, but, you know, why change now? It's just pride. That's just all it is. It's just, I want something, and I'm not talking about masses of people. I mean, his teaching is phenomenal. It's, I want to be something that you have not ordained me to be. Therefore, the temptation is to be unsatisfied with the blessings you're giving me right now. God has ordained us to be who we are. And to be unhappy with that is sin. Ironically, Jesus addresses this in the next few verses. Luke 21, 5 through 8, and we might get through this, we might not, I don't know. Verse 5, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was ordained with noble stones and offerings. I'm going to stop there because this is what happens. A few weeks or perhaps a month back, we learned that the temple was everything to Israel. Remember? Especially the temple in Jerusalem. It's where the people came to meet with God. In this temple rested the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. And it was beautiful. And the Holy of Holies, the priest would enter the inner sanctum of the temple, building to offer a sin offering for the people. A one-foot-thick, wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling tapestry separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. You know how much that would weigh? A foot-thick piece of material? And this is the same veil that just in a few hours would, would be torn from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. Now keep that in mind. Because as glorious as the temple was in every detail, and the pageantry that surrounded the temple, how magnificent it was, and it was a crown jewel of Jewish religion and the source of national pride, it was a show place in many ways, designed to reflect the majesty of God. However, instead of reflecting God's majesty to many, it had become a false sense of security. It had actually become their God. A friend of mine once said this, the problem with the church is we were having a love, we were having a love affair with the church. Instead of our husband. So Jesus is talking about this widower. And as he was still speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offering, how they were still speaking with this, he's saying, Be careful. 
We can relate to this a little bit. They felt the temple was indestructible, although it had been destroyed before. What we might be able to relate to, those of us who remember history and are taught history, is Pearl Harbor for the United States. Everything was humming along just fine. We stayed out of the war in Europe. Everybody was, you know, having cocktails on the beach in Pearl Harbor. The Japanese attacked. And it was devastating to the United States because it showed how vulnerable we were. 2001. Everything's humming along just fine. Everybody's having cocktails in the restaurant of the Twin Towers. And when we saw those things fall, it did something to us, right? It wasn't just concrete and glass. It took away our security. And what did we do? What did we turn to? Not God. We turned to religion as a nation. And everyone was encouraged to pray to their God. I will never forget this. The president at the time in the National Cathedral quotes Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am convinced neither life nor death nor demons or uh, I am convinced neither life nor death nor demons can separate us from the love of God. And he stopped right there. You know what the next line is? In Christ Jesus. He eliminated the power of the Scripture. Why would he do that? It's called politics. See, that's our other temptation, is it not? Politics. We saw those towers fall, and for the first time in my lifetime, I thought, they can get to us. Well, Jesus heard these comments about the nobility And he said this, As for these things that you see, verse 6, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Religious pride, national pride. And how did he know that? Because he knew where he was going. The veil itself would be shred. And I'm sure this was unthinkable at that time. Can we agree that no nation is too big to fall? Then he says this, Matthew 23, 37-39, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. This is not a national sermon about the United States. This is about you and it's about me. How often I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Are you willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he still mourns for them. Now this is the exact opposite of how the world would interpret this. Jesus is saying this because he is mourning for the people that are going to die and never be in heaven. What a cruel God you serve. If he can't have his way, 
He destroys you. Is that the God of love you serve? I think it is more like this. God is saying, I created you and placed you in paradise. I told you that if you sinned against me, disobeyed me, you would die. You disobeyed me. And then you hid from me. And then you lied to me. And instead of killing you, I created a way for you to return to me. And not just a way to return to me, and not just a way to escape your sin, but for your sin to be removed. That was my response to your disobedience. And by the way, you trashed paradise. And it's still trashed today. And that sin would not only be removed, it would be forgotten. How, you ask? By punishing you and torturing you to get revenge? Is that how your sin is going to be forgotten? No. I sent my son to you. You rejected him. You tortured him. You killed him. And I had the right to remove you. I have the right to remove you, to execute you, and to leave you where you die. That's the right I have. Over 2,000 years have passed since my son died for you and then rose from the dead, and still you say no to him. Every day of your life, you continue to reject him. This is personal, says God, between you and me. You have offended me. And although I have the right to be angry and vindictive, let me tell you what I feel when I look at you. I feel sorrow. I am still waiting for you. See, this is the God we serve. He's the only God. And the God who is beyond all judgment and still chooses to wait for our sake and for His sake to hear a prayer from you to receive Him. May I read Matthew 23 37 through 39, one more time as we think about this. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. How often I have begged you, I have pounded on your heart to receive me, and you would not receive me. See your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not a God who judges unfairly. This is a God who has been unfairly judged.
This is always our prayer here at the gathering. If you don't know Jesus, you need to, and there's a way there. This whole sermon has explained it. What are you willing to live without for the sake of Christ? And if one thing pops up in your mind, you are not saved. God demands it all. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are beautiful and powerful. You are majestic. You are holy. You are untouchable, but for the blood of Christ. My Father, whatever might be in the back of our minds or in hearts buried deeply that we are hanging on to, Lord, can we just say we give that to you now? It doesn't mean we live sin-free from now on. That's impossible. What it simply means is this. I love you more than all my sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Blessings, everyone. Hope we see you down with, uh, with the soup and salad. <laughs>